If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 98. I'm sure you wish Pastor Lance was here, and I know he wishes he was here, but uh, he has a pretty nasty upper respiratory uh, cold, and um, if I hadn't heard it myself, I would think this is payback for my sabbatical. I'm fully expecting that uh, next week John's going to call me and uh, I'm going to pick up the guitar. No, I would not do that to you. I would not do that to you. Again, take your Bibles and let's turn to Psalm 98. Now that we are all on the same page with listening to Christmas music, as we talked about last week, the question I have for you is what is your favorite Christmas carol? What's your favorite Christmas song? What, what's the go-to? What's the one that you play over and over again? What's the one that gets turned up loud when you're in the car? The one that you skip over your wife's favorite or your husband's favorite to get to yours? I realize it's a difficult question because there are so many to choose from, and there are at least three different categories or genre of Christmas carols. We have the religious Christmas songs that deal with the events around Christ's birth. Uh, songs that speak of fulfilled prophecy, songs that declare Mary and Joseph and all that went on there, songs of the angel and the shepherds and the king, the, the, wise, uh, the wise men and the star. But we also have songs that are secular songs that celebrate the Christmas season itself and all that the season brings, songs of snow and lights and presents and being home for Christmas. And then there's a third category of song that deal with fictional characters, stories that have nothing to do with Jesus or his incarnation. Songs about a jolly, plump, elderly elf that leaves gifts, flying reindeer and snowmen that sing and dance. Two of the most purchased or downloaded songs fall under the second category, uh, and that is Bing Crosby's White Christmas. And Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. That was a bit shocking to me. But what is your favorite Christmas song? For me, I'm always waffling between O Holy Night and Emmanuel, Hallowed Manger Ground. And my wife prefers me sing Emmanuel because it's not as difficult to sing. But O Holy Night, you can just belt out in the shower. Um, And I give it a shot. But what if we had the opportunity to sit down with one of the participants of the first Christmas morning and to ask them, what is your favorite Christmas song? What if we could ask Mary, the mother of our Savior, what is your favorite Christmas song? Well, I want to suggest to you that her favorite Christmas song is not Mary, Did You Know? (laughs) Even though I love the song. But it probably and actually is the psalm that is sitting right in front of you. Psalm 98. In Luke 1, immediately after greeting her cousin Elizabeth, and after Elizabeth cries out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Immediately after this greeting, immediately after Elizabeth shares what's going on even in her own body, 
Mary responds to Elizabeth's blessing with, his, with what is now commonly called the Magnificat. And we find that poem of praise in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. The Latin translation of Mary's response begins with the word magnificant, which means to magnify or to exalt or to glorify. And the magnificant is a poem of praise to God, praising him for his blessing of Mary and his faithfulness to Israel. The Magnificat also highlights a series of reversals and victories and salvations in which the proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted. Not the least being this poor young girl who is about to become the mother of the Messiah. But if you read her song carefully and you read it immediately after you read Psalm 98, you will see that this psalm must have been in her mind when she penned her own poem. This was her source material. As she is contemplating and meditating and pondering the baby that she's carrying... She believes that her boy, who the angel foretold in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and who was miraculously conceived in Matthew 1.18, he was the fulfillment of this psalm. He was who the psalmist was thinking about as he penned this letter. As he proclaimed Yahweh and Lord, he was thinking of the Messiah. Just listen to the similarities between the psalmist's words And Mary's words. The psalmist says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And Mary says, My soul exalts or sings to the Lord. The psalmist says, For he has done wonderful things. Mary, for the mighty one has done great things for me. The psalmist, his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Mary said, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The psalmist says, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. And Mary says, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. The psalmist says, he has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And Mary says, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. I don't know if she was, had it memorized and as she was going to Jerusalem to see Elizabeth, it was playing over in her mind. Maybe that's what she had been worshiping. But this is the source material of this Magnificat. Mary, as she anticipated the birth of her son and Savior, she rejoiced because of who the Lord is and what the Lord would do. She recognized her son as the exact representation of the Lord. She understood her son to be the Lord tabernacled amongst us. She understood that this little one was the Lord in flesh and blood. And a psalm like this, yes, it is appropriate for for Christmas and the Christmas season, but it is so needed for us today. When we see all that is happening in the world, how are we to have joy? How are we to sing with enthusiasm when the burdens of life weigh us down? When the sin and guilt that we feel is present in us? 
When a beloved husband lies in bed and you're circled around them and you are knowing that this is the last couple of hours you're going to be with him. When we consider our personal struggles in life, how can we find joy? How can we have hope? Well, the Psalms are always a great place to turn to find strength and words of hope during difficult times. Many of the Psalms were written during personal distresses experienced by God's people. Some of the Psalms were written after the nation of Judah was invaded and captured and carried away to captivities in foreign lands. And so the Psalms become God's book of hope for His people. Uh, Psalms that we can sing in our own hearts to, to rejuvenate, to remind us that we can have joy, that there is joy in this world. Before we look at the meaning of Psalm 98 and how it can help us today, I want us to notice how often this psalm calls us to joy and calls us to sing regardless of those circumstances, regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless if this is the greatest day or the worst day. Verse 1 reads, sing to the Lord. Verse 4, make a joyful noise, sing praises, break forth into joyous songs. Verses 5 and 6, repeat these calls for joyous songs and joyful noises. And then verse 8 repeats these calls for joyous songs uh, by calling nature and creation even to rejoice. The point of this psalm is for God's people to sing and to have joy. That we can be joyful and we can sing joyfully together no matter what is going on in our lives. These are calls for joy that are not dependent on our circumstances. But it is calls for joy in the knowledge and belief of the God who is orchestrating and with us in the midst of those circumstances. Today, as we reflect on the incarnation of Christ and as we study this psalm together, I want us to see three characteristics of the Lord. And we see that in Psalm 98, in all caps, it's Yahweh, the name of God. Three characteristics of the Lord, who Mary understood to be her son, Jesus, that should produce in our hearts joy and should motivate us to worship in song and with our very lives. Now, the Old Testament saints couldn't have fully known who their Messiah would be, but we can see clearly that Yahweh, the Lord, mentioned six different times in this psalm, is the Christ child, the child that Mary delivered over 2,000 years ago. Well, let's read this psalm together. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. 
Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is hard at times to see a passage like this and to recognize that no matter what is going on in our life, we have reason to be joyful. But Lord, your scripture is so clear that we do. That because of your reign, that because of your judgment, that because of your saving work, we can be joyful no matter what we experience. That you are with us, that you are for us, that you sent your son to live a life we could not live and to die a death that we deserved. That we can know that we have victory over sin and death. And Lord, that you are working in our lives to complete what you started and that one day we will spend eternity with you. There is great joy in knowing that you are working in the midst of everything, that all things work together for good. So Lord, as we look at this psalm, teach us. And as we go through the difficulties of this life, may we remember who you are. And Lord, may we rejoice, not based on what we're going through, but we would rejoice based on who we're going through it with. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think we're on good ground to understand this text as Mary did. Not only a call to sing and rejoice uh, for God's amazing deliverances in life, and in particular the life of the author here, uh, how he saw salvation And how he saw the Lord deliver Israel from Exodus, uh, 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 from the Exodus from uh, Egypt or from Israel's captivity in Babylon. But to see it as a call to rejoice and worship in the incarnate word, Yahweh, who took on flesh and blood. If you read the narrative given to us by Luke of the proclamation to the shepherds, The angel's words are very similar to the words of this text as well. Listen to the angels uh, declare to the, uh, the, the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Great joy for all the people, a Savior who is Christ the Lord or King. Over and over again in that short declaration to the shepherds, we hear the very themes and words of Psalm 98. We can look at this psalm as a Christmas carol. So John, you picked a song from the 400s. I picked a song 2,500 years ago. This psalm is both declaring God's goodness in the present, but also looking hundreds of years into the future to the ultimate salvation, which would be brought by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Psalm 98 is a royal psalm written to celebrate the righteous reign of God. It is clustered together, Psalm 93 through Psalm 100, to celebrate the enthronement of God over all the earth. They put together so that in their worship they would focus and recognize that God reigns. 
We are not told of its author. We're not told when it's written. We're not told why it was written. But nonetheless, it is so very instructive to us. As you can see, the psalm is divided into three stanzas. Each stanza comprises of three verses. Each stanza declares a different reason to rejoice and praise Yahweh, to praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this psalm, as we think about Christ and his entry into the world, as we think about his post-resurrection ministry now and his future, ultimate, eternal reign, may these three things cause us to sing and to rejoice. In verses 1 through 3, we see that we are to rejoice in the Lord because he saves. Rejoice in the Lord because he saves. Salvation can be clearly seen in the theme of the first three verses here. In verse 1, it says that through his power, he has gained the victory. Salvation language. In verse 2, he says he has made known his salvation. He has declared it and all have seen it. In verse 3, it says, The ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Salvation simply means deliverance or the act of being saved. As the Israelites of that time looked at their history, as the Israelites of that time looked at their very daily life, they could see that God delivers, that God saves. And spiritually, as we look at our life and we look at our condition, we know that God saves. And the instruction given in verse 1 is to sing to the Lord. That is the response of this amazing characteristic of God, is a singing. Because the Lord saves, we are to sing and rejoice. There is to be a happiness, a contentment in our heart, because we know that our God saves. And it says that we are to sing a new song because of it. Now, singing a new song is an instruction that is seen here, and it's seen in many other passages and places in Scripture. And it does not mean that God is tired of hearing old songs. He has canonized 150 songs just in the Psalms. He is not looking for some new tune, some new instrument to, to, to have these songs played on. We are not forbidden to sing something old. Just in today's worship list, Pastor John selected songs from the 16th century, the 13th century, the 4th century, and the 3rd century. Again, John, old in soul. A new song is a celebration of a new victory accomplished by the Lord. Or it's a celebration in a new and a fresh way. It is to look at life and see God's hand in it and to be wowed newly and freshly again. Be it the military victories of Israel's deliverance from Egypt or Babylon or just the regular everyday deliverance from, from poverty or starvation or cold, all that God does throughout our physical lives. But God was doing great things not only in their physical lives, but spiritually, and that was to cause them joy and make them sing. 
It is so easy for us to lose sight of God's constant work in our lives. And oftentimes we sing a song robotically. And he's saying, don't sing it robotically. Sing it in a new and fresh way. The songs that are old, the hymns that are old, the, the, the psalms that are old, to look at them in a fresh way, to apply them to your life and to see how God has worked in you today. The psalmist wanted the people to sing in a new way, a fresh way, because Yahweh delivered them. Look at verse 1. He uses this figurative language of his right hand and holy arm. Again, Mary quotes this, uses this phrase to talk of the power of God, the right hand power, the arm power. And it is declaring the power and might of God, which makes it clear that it is God who did the delivering. God who did the salvation and the saving. It is the Lord who saved. It was not something that came from man's power or man's wisdom and not through government or military strength, but through God and His power. But did you catch the end of verse 1? It says his right hand and his holy arm gained the victory. And this is a a highlight that the psalmist is wanting us to recognize. That he gained the victory for him. Capital H in the New American Standard. Israel enjoyed salvation. You and I find salvation. But that salvation is ultimately for his glory. I love this declaration. God, in his powerful deliverance of his people, ultimately brings about salvation for himself. This is the great hope we have, that God will act for his own purposes and to defend his own name and holiness, his own covenant. Yes, we know that God will act on behalf of his people, but But consider what the psalmist is emphasizing here, that God will act on his own behalf And he will always do that. He will exalt and glorify himself. He has promised it and he will fulfill it. God cannot go against his own nature. And so our salvation is not, again, based on us. It is based on who God is and what God wants to reveal and declare. The deliverance of his people, be it physical emotional or spiritual, is a testimony of God's strength. It's a testimony of God's love, his compassion, his wisdom, and it's how he declares himself into the world. Yes, in creation around us, but through his deliverance and salvation of his people. Through that deliverance, the whole earth will witness him. They witness his care, his faithfulness, his covenant They witness his greatness and power through the marvelous works accomplished in his watch care over his people, Israel, specifically in this text. But as we see, as we move through the pages of Scripture, through his salvation of the church, God is conducting a great international campaign to make himself known. And so he will continue to save because He continually wants to make himself known. Again, this passage is dealing specifically through, is dealing with the the people of Israel, 
But it was through Israel that people from far off would come to God. That the faith of Abraham that credited to him as righteousness is granted to not only Jewish people who but believe in that same God. And all the nations become Abraham's spiritual children. This deliverance is that those that are dead in their trespasses and sins would be made alive. And Mary recognized that it was her son that would be the object of that faith and the deliverer of his people. The angels declared on that first Christmas day that today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior. God's people are to continue to sing a new song of salvation And Scripture teaches us that we will sing a new song for eternity. That new, fresh song that looks back at our salvation. That looks back at the fact that we are no longer dead in our sin. Let me read two passages from Revelation to you. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints, and they sang a new song. What did they sing? What is this new song? Saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. The new song is the song of salvation. And we will sing that now. We sing that now. And we will sing that in heaven. And Revelation 14, 1 through 3. Then I looked and behold the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him one hundred and forty. 4,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. This new song that we're singing now is the same new song that we'll sing in heaven. And the song is about God's deliverance and recognizing its importance to us. And the songs that are new are songs about the message of victory and salvation. By the blood of the Lamb, God's people have been ransomed, Revelation 5.9, and redeemed, Revelation 14.3. God's victory is our victory God's acting for his benefit is our benefit. For us to see his right hand and holy arm bring salvation through the sovereign orchestration of his son's life, death, and resurrection. For us to see his right hand and his right arm is to see that he provides life to those who are dead, strength to those who are weak, Freedom to those who are enslaved to their sin. God is a God of salvation. And we must rejoice and we must sing. And our hope in difficult times is based upon that knowledge. We sing by faith in the midst of distress because we rest in the joy of salvation accomplished by our Lord. In the days of despair and hopelessness, We are to think of God's love for us and the salvation he brought to us through Christ Jesus. 
But we also see a second reason to rejoice in this psalm. Verses 4 through 6, it tells us to rejoice in the Lord because He reigns. Not only does He save, but He reigns. In this middle stanza of the psalm, we see that there is a call for the, for the earth to make joyful noises and to sing praises to the King, the Lord. Again, notice that our worship is to be joyful, but also notice that our worship is to be loud. This exciting news of our salvation, this exciting news that He reigns is to be more than our little voice boxes can handle. And we are to be loud. We are to shout joyfully. We are to break forth and sing. And then he talks about this musical element and medley element and how it's to come together so that with music we are to declare the greatness of God and we are to declare the great joy that we find in our hearts. From reading the Old Testament passage, uh, reading Old Testament passages of the Old Testament uh, worship, the noise of the temple was legendary. In 1 Chronicles 29, 25 through 30, I'd encourage you to go there this week. In Ezra 3, 5, it speaks of loudness. Ezra 3, 5 says this, that the shouts of the people could be heard far away. Have our neighbors complained enough about our worship on Sunday mornings? Those of you in the sound room, the next time someone says it's too loud, quote Psalm 98. John Wesley told his followers, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you are half dead or half asleep, but lift your voice with strength. Be more afraid of your voice now. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sang songs of Satan before you were saved. What excited us before salvation that got us going, that got us motivated, that got us moving, that got us loud? Are we going to be more loud about that than we are that God reigns, that he has saved us? Two times in in this text, we are told to shout joyfully and sing praises to the Lord. Oftentimes, we sing quietly because we're afraid of what it sounds like when we sing loudly. We're not confident in our singing ability. But the point here is to sing to the Lord. Not to sing so that people won't look down on you, so that you'd get embarrassed. It has nothing to do with you or me. It is all about God. It is all about the world hearing about God. We aren't singing to ourselves. It isn't about a particular style that we love. It is to the Lord. We're coming before the King, the Lord, and singing praises to Him. We are worshiping in His presence. Our worship is not to come from a feeling of obligation, even though we are obligated to sing, but from the joy in our heart that the one we sing to, and he emphasizes this in this second stanza, He is, verse 8, the King. He is the King. He is the one who reigns over all things. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6 says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. 
We rejoice because God reigns over all the events of our lives. He brings the blessing into our lives. He orchestrates the good into the difficulties and the trials and the the troubling experiences, the painful parts of our life. He reigns over all creation, over all spiritual beings and activities, and all over human uh, elements like people and nations. But he also rules over nature. And this picture of God as king over all the earth is the reason we are to shout joyfully. Because what, is, what we are experiencing is controlled by God. The God who loves us so much to save us is the God that is lovingly reigning over us. Listen to what Daniel says in Daniel 2, verse 20. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Why? For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And again, going back to Mary's poem in Luke 1, she understood the child growing within her was the king and ruler over all. And speaking of Jesus, going back to Revelation, Revelation 19, 16, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The reigning resurrected Christ has a tattoo on his thigh that speaks to this element of his character. That he is king over all other kings and lord over all masters. So then our joy rests in the knowledge of God's sovereign rule. We are not dependent on chance or the power of a wicked person in our life. No, God reigns. And he works and orchestrates through chance and through the wicked people in our lives. You and I can have joy and comfort in the knowledge that Jesus is not only our Savior, but He is also King and He rules over the earth. And so all the earth is called upon to rejoice in the Lord because our Savior and our God is King. But in verses 7 through 9, we are told to rejoice in the Lord because He judges. Rejoice in the Lord because He judges. Notice this in verse, verses 8 and 9. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Living in a world corrupted by sin, we can only experience justice that is tainted by it. Even in our great desire to see justice in this world, we know that that justice isn't just. It's as good as it can get. Right is viewed as wrong, and wrong is viewed as right. Even judges that seek to be righteous, they can't know all the elements of the case and cannot read the hearts of those involved, and so our justice is not complete justice. But the judgment of the Lord is an occasion for our joy because He judges in righteousness and equity. Jesus, in all his knowledge and all of his wisdom, will judge the world with righteousness. So we are to sing of the 
coming judgment day. Here the psalmist pictures the very elements of God's creation so overwhelmed by this fact that they are participating with us. So we're, we're singing loudly. We're singing with joy in the first part of the psalm. And so as the, 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 the elements of creation hear this, they then jump in. Now rivers are clapping and mountains are singing. The, the mountain begins to join with us in singing. Because Jesus will make all things right. Yahweh will balance the scales and there is universal rejoicing. Yahweh is coming. And I think that's the point. His coming declares a literal visit to this earth. Yes, in the first coming, but there will be a reigning of Christ. And we find joy and hope in the judgment of the Lord because in his coming as judge, he will, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, he will reconcile all things to himself. He will reverse the curse found in Genesis 3, where sin runs rampant on earth and death was brought about by sin, where creation is groaning because of that sin. There will be a conclusion, and that conclusion is that Jesus will make everything right. Jesus will restore what sin so mangled. Listen to these verses. In Isaiah chapter 11, he is talking about the root of Jesse. He's talking about Jesus. And he, he talks about the root of Jesse in verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 11. But then he begins to talk about what it will be like when the judge has reconciled all things to himself. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. They will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The creation will go as it was supposed to. It will resolve itself. It will be reconciled. It will no longer groan. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 through 12. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give grief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus, our judge, will be revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The judge will come to deal and pour out his wrath. But this judge will not only make all creation reconciled, will not only 
bring judgment to those who deserve it. But in Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay or reward every man according to his deeds. There will be reward for righteousness. A couple of weeks ago, Lance directed our attention to Psalm 73 and the psalmist is sitting there going, Why is life the way it is? Why is it good for the wicked and hard for the righteous? When the judge comes, it will be made right. When it comes to evil done to us, God as judge will right the wrongs that we've experienced. When it comes to death that men deserve, he will bring life through his son. When it comes to groaning of creation, he will make all things new. When it comes to the faithfulness done by his people, he will demonstrate equity and he will reward. We do not have to be disturbed by life's problems, by political issues or global events because God reigns and he will put all of his enemies under his feet. Our joy and hope come not from ourselves, but from the Lord who saves, who rules, and who judges. Now Mary was not the only one to pen a poem based on Psalm 98. The song we sang previous, Joy to the World, published by Isaac Watts in 1719, found its source material from this same song. And he found his source for the beloved Christmas carol that we sing every year from this song. So I've asked them to put the, 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 the verses of this song, and I'm not going to sing it. It's not, a, it's not a solo, so you guys can take a deep breath. But I just want us to think about the verses of the song with the verses of this psalm. Verse 1. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. This verse is taken from the middle stanza of this verse, in this psalm, in verses 4 through 6. Here the whole earth is encouraged to rejoice and receive their king. Look at verse 2. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plain repeat the sounding joy. Now we're back in verses 7 and 8 where all creation is called upon to sing as well and to rejoice. Verse 3. Let Or no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. This verse looks back to God's salvation being made to the ends of the earth earth in verse 2. And to the reversal of that curse and the Lord's second coming in verse 9. Where he will judge with righteousness and equity. And fulfill Romans 8.21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then finally, verse 4. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He rules and he reigns, verse Six. We know that Jesus judges the world in righteousness and equity, 
and that before that standard we are all damned, but he is the lover of our souls. And he is, the, he is faithful to be the holy sacrifice that we are in need of. And he is also faithful to his promise to forgive. And what is our call to this amazing thought of who God is? We are to sing of his wondrous love. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so excited about who you are. We are so excited about what you've done. And as a, and as a body of believers, we now turn our attention to the Lord's table, to that remembrance of that love demonstrated so clearly in the death of your Son. Father, may we sing, may we rejoice knowing that you loved us so much that you sent the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the earth, that we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are being sanctified, and we will one day enter into your presence for eternity. Lord, be honored and glorified as we take these elements, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.